Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Best Pictures Podcast. I'm Ian, and this is Maggie, and on this episode, we're doing the 13th Best Picture winner, appropriately numbered, (laughs) Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca. Yes, so this is a 1940s thriller. As Ian said, it is directed by Alfred Hitchcock and based on the book of the same name by Daphne du Maurier. Um, It is about a young woman, played by Joan Fontaine, who marries an older, wealthy man, played by Laurence Olivier. And then throughout the film, she struggles living in the shadow of his uh, former first wife, who was supposedly very well-loved and glamorous, only to discover throughout the film that her husband may have been involved in her mysterious death. It may have. He was definitely involved involved. in her mysterious death. But not necessarily in the way that she thinks. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, So I think background on this is going to be pretty quick, and then we'll jump straight into the movie itself. Um, So as we said, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, starring Laurence Olivier and Joan Fontaine. It was also produced by David O. Selznick, who produced our previous Best Picture winner, Gone with the Wind. Interesting. Also, Joan Fontaine was Olivia de Havilland's sister, who was in Gone with the Wind. And Laurence Olivier later married Vivian Lee, star of Gone with the Wind. So there's an interesting amount of kind of weird connection there. Yeah. And now I see the family resemblance when I think through it. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so other like nominations and awards that Rebecca got, um, it, was, it won Best Cinematography for Black and White. So were were those categories still split at this point? Yes. Um, Gone with the Wind was our first Technicolor winner, but Technicolor wasn't the like main medium for film yet. Okay. Yeah. Um, So they had a lot of those categories split. Mm -hmm. Um, Hitchcock was nominated for Best Director, but lost to John Ford for Grapes of Wrath. It won Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, Laurence Olivier was nominated for Best Actor, but lost to Jimmy Stewart for The Philadelphia Story. Joan Fontaine was nominated for Best Actress, but lost to Ginger Rogers for Kitty Foyle. And Judith Anderson was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, but lost to Jane Darwell for Grapes of Wrath. Judith Anderson plays Mrs. Danvers, the creepy-as-fuck housekeeper. And I she did her. a good job. Oh, I loved her. I am so supportive of that nomination. Um, I actually haven't watched all of Grapes of Wrath, so I can't really make a call on who should have won. But we did watch Philadelphia Story. Yes, and I that, can is, say that is one of our faves. Jimmy Stewart definitely deserved that Oscar. Yeah, yeah. Jimmy Stewart over everybody, always. <laughs> um, it won for Best Film Editing. It Actually, I think it was nominated for Best Film Editing, but didn't win. Nominated for Best Original Score, but lost to Pinocchio, and that is, in fact, the Disney animated Pinocchio. It was nominated for Best Art Direction for a Black and White Film, but lost to Pride and Prejudice, and it was nominated for Best Special Effects. It was also rated number 80 on AFI's 100 Thrills list, the American Film Institute's list of like top 100 thrillers. And Mrs. Danvers was number 31 on the American Film Institute's list of top 100 heroes and villains. She was the number 31 villain. Oh, I love that. I think that's a really good pick. Um, Really quickly, other Best Picture nominees from that year, Foreign Correspondent, All This in Heaven 2, Grapes of Wrath, The Great Dictator, Kitty Foyle, The Letter, The Long Voyage Home, Our Town, and The Philadelphia Story. So really another strong year for Hollywood. Mm -hmm. 
I'm okay with this winning though. Yeah, I, no, I, I, I actually really enjoyed this, especially. I do too. I'm a big fan of this one. Um, it had been a while since I watched it, so there were definitely things that I think annoyed me that hadn't previously <laughs> like come to my attention. Um, but I think you know from kind of we're I guess we're just launching into watch notes now. But from an yeah. overall standpoint, I think structurally very sound. Even when characters frustrated me, they were still well-written, well-rounded, well-acted characters. And they were internally consistent, at yes. least. Which I I like when a film is able to show its characters making decisions in line with how they've been introduced. Mm-hmm. Or if they vary, it's because we notice a switch. Mm-hmm. And we got some and very... we got that from Jane Fontaine in space. Joan Fontaine. Joan Fontaine. I'm going to call her <laughs> Jane Fontaine. Joan no. Fontaine. The new Mrs. De Winter. Yes. So... <laughs> Throughout the film, and this is actually consistent with the book, because I've read the book. I don't know if you have. I have not. Yeah. So in the book, we actually never learn uh, Joan Fontaine's character's like first name. She's just referred to as like Darling or Mrs. De Winter or the second Mrs. De Winter throughout the movie and, of course, the book. So I think kind of for shorthand, we'll be referring to her as Joan or Joan Fontaine. Probably. Yeah. Or the new Mrs. De Winter, or which is not Mrs. so shorthand. <laughs> Depends on how formal we're, formal we're feeling. <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, especially her character arc is very clear. And I, so if you've watched a lot of Hitchcock films, there is kind of the trope of the Hitchcock blonde. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Janet Lee in Psycho, uh, Grace Kelly in Rear Window, uh, Kim Novak in Vertigo, where there are these like very beautiful blonde women who... Play a or play a central part in the movie, but don't necessarily get a lot of character development and character arc. That's not the case in this one, and I think a huge part of that is that it is very close to the source material script wise, which was something that David O. Selznick was very vehement on because Hitchcock's first draft of the script was apparently very different, and Selznick was like, "No, no, no, I want a cystic." as closely as possible to the original material. I'm so glad they did though, because Mm -hmm. I Jones character arc to me, I think was very compelling, even though to some extent it almost seemed like Rebecca was the central character in this film. And I really loved the effect of how they were able to pull that off, especially with leaving Joan without a first name. Yes. um, Because we never see Rebecca. I don't think we ever even even see see a a picture. picture. Yeah. It's just, she is this sort of larger than life mythical figure, which I think works really well because to Joan's character. So to set this up a little bit, Joan Fontaine is very young and she's kind of, out on her own in the world for the first time, she's been hired as like a traveling companion by this like wealthy middle-aged woman who's such an Edith. asshole. She would spell, apparently she spells her name with E-D-Y-T-H. Yeah, and I'm like, Edith of course, Van Hopper. <laughs> of course you'd spell it yeah, with a Y. <laughs> and so she's very much like this meek, um, like they call her a girl a lot. And Okay, I had some major issues with how they seem to infantilize yes, Joan's yes. character. Because even um, Mr. DeWinter, when he was courting mm-hmm. her, would say things like, oh, you're just a girl, you need to find a boy to marry. And I'm like, okay, this yeah. is like verging into very creepy older man, much younger oh, wife yes. thing. Oh, yes. And then even one of Rebecca's beaux, uh, who was referred to as her favorite cousin, even said something about how he would love to have a newly wedded young wife at home. And I'm like, oh, yeah. this is so icky. Well, and they even do it with her costuming. She's wearing, early on, a lot of headbands. Um, I think 
because she and Maxim de Winter, Lawrence Olivia's character, meet in Monte mm-hmm. Carlo, and there's like a scene of them dancing, and she's got like a couple bows in her hair, and I was like, ooh, a grown woman wearing bows in her hair is like kind of icky in this context. Um, but they have her dress kind of like a sloppy schoolgirl a lot mm-hmm. of the time, and then when the big transition happens, when she discovers that Max had a part in Rebecca's death, and he finally, finally tells her the whole story. Mm-hmm. It's like the first time that they're now on equal footing and you see the character starts to be dressed differently. Her hair is styled differently. It's much more grown up, much more adult. And you see a shift in her character to where she's now taking charge. She is acting like the lady of the house. She is like making decisions and you actually see them kiss for the first, like really kiss. Cause previously Mm -hmm. up to that point, he would like kiss her forehead or like kiss her cheek. And it was just like a weirdly paternalistic uh, yeah, it would, relationship. It was but really icky. Yeah. But I do like that they make that very clear shift, not only in the writing, but visually in the once he comes out and tells her the whole story and she's like informed and understands and like makes the decision of like, I love you and I'm sticking by you that she becomes an adult and that she is now on a more equal footing with him. And I think Mm -hmm. that goes to one of my frustrations throughout the film where every time she does something that like reminds him of Rebecca, he gets really mad about it. And she assumes it's because he loved Rebecca so much because she's been told by everybody, especially Mrs. Danvers that like, Rebecca was so well loved and he was so in love with her and her death was so hard for him. So she assumes that like he really loved Rebecca. In fact, he really hated Rebecca, but he won't tell her that. So like she keeps thinking that she's done something wrong, which I'm like, Joan, you're not doing anything wrong. Just no one's explaining anything to you. Well, and that, that was one of the most infuriating things for me because I, I can understand that if you are supposed to be a simple working class bumpkin, for lack of a better words, okay, maybe you're not able to pick up on some of the the cues that you're not getting the whole picture. But I guess from my audience perspective, it's very clear to me that people are gaslighting her about oh, yeah. uh, about Rebecca, especially Miss Danvers. Which oh yes, um, that performance we're gonna, was amazing. You know, in like a minute or two, let's just like take some time to talk just about Mrs. Danvers. Oh, definitely. But like Joan's character, I'm like, come on now. You need to understand that this is happening and it's not you. But then again, I can see how that could be consistent with her being all of a sudden I'm at this beautiful estate and I'm way out of place and I don't know what to do. And so I'm just flummoxed. Yeah. Well, they establish very well. And I think this is why it works. As frustrating as it is, I think that's why it works so well is that they established very early on that one, she's very young Two, she's very inexperienced and grew up in kind of a wacky home, but like a pretty sheltered home Mm -hmm. and that she's just a very meek personality. And the way Joan Fontaine plays it, I love like when she's walking, she's always kind of like clutching at her skirt. Like her posture is very sort of like shoulders kind of rolled in a little bit. She kind of like sinks back, especially from any sort of confrontation. Mm -hmm. And I think her physicality is so good in that because it really gives you the sense of this character. And so then the shift later becomes so apparent, but she doesn't completely lose like the meekness and stuff, which I like, but you can definitely like see the growing confidence. So I think 
you know, they establish who the character is so strongly early on and then give her room to grow so that everything is very consistent and like all of the behavior, even when it's frustrating feels appropriate for the character and like appropriate for her insecurities. Mm -hmm. I think that was especially shown in the, it's the West wing Mm -hmm. scene with Mrs. Danvers. So well, I guess we'll give a little bit of where we are in the plot. So basically Joan Fontaine meets Maxim de Winter in Monte Carlo. They get married like kind of fast and like everything seems to be like really good. Although we as the audience are starting to get a like little hints of like something's a little off with him. Oh no. He was, he was saying weird, creepy things about how she was so young in the car. And I'm okay, like, oh, I mean, don't other, marry him. Don't marry other him. Other than that, like <laughs> stuff that would have been like a little off even to audiences in the forties. I'm not sure if the, that would have been as <laughs> off to audiences in the forties as it is to us now. But um, then they go to his estate, which is called Manderley in England, and she's sort of introduced to the staff. And the main member of the staff is Mrs. Danvers, the housekeeper, who we discover came to Manderley with the first Mrs. De Winter, a.k.a. Rebecca. And Mrs. Danvers is creepily devoted to the first Mrs. De Winter and like her memory. And so there's like the West Wing of the house where Rebecca's room was that is like completely shut off. Like they don't really go in there. And it's a little weird to me. No one ever tells Joan Fontaine that she can't go there, but like when she does decide to go there, it's very much like her like sneaking over there. And I kind of want to be like, Joan, it's your house now. <laughs> like you can do whatever you want. Like you again, are in charge. That enforces the idea that she is so out of her element. She has yeah, no idea what to that, do. Like, and in what's her mind, she, it's not her house. And that in her mind, it's still Rebecca's house. And it's, it's frustrating, but it's also such a good psychological struggle to watch because she just constantly feels like, she'll never live up to Rebecca. And I think she has like a little speech when she has a little bit of a breakdown that she's like, I can never live up to her. Mm-hmm. Like I can never be as glamorous as her. I can never be as good at this kind of thing as she was because like she was a member of this part of society and a member of this class. And like, I'm not right. But that doesn't mean you can't learn, which again, it's, I have this weird, you annoy me, but also I want you to like actually grow and yes. into your role. But Yes. Cause she's, I mean, she's a good person. Like we, we like her, but we get frustrated with her. But like, I think all of her struggles are also completely understandable. Yeah. And I think that that is one of the things that I really like is when it's relatable, which even though this was made in 1940, I'm, I'm happy that it's still relatable today because yeah. it still works. It really holds well. up very well. Um, but you were talking about something with the, the West Wing scene. Oh yeah. So this is where, um, her behavior seemed consistent, but it was so in- infuriating because the scene in the West Wing where Miss Danvers is taking the new Mrs. De Winter through Rebecca's old room or apparently still current room. Yeah, she, I think, explicitly says, like, I've kept it exactly as it was the day she died. Oh, and it was, th- there were some really great, I think this might delve into Miss Danvers' performance a little bit too. Oh, Judith Anderson, a, phenomenal. Oh, it was so good. Like, stole the show every time she was on screen. Mm-hmm. So uh, Joan is walking through the room and Miss Danvers is showing little pieces of Rebecca's stuff. So it starts with the furs in the closet Mm -hmm. and she kind of 
Okay. Which, okay, if I was me, I would have been like, okay, cool. Uh, she's gone. They're my furs now because they were beautiful. <laughs> but the way Miss Danvers acted that particular scene, I, I know that this is not how it was supposed to read, but it definitely read like unrequited lesbian romance to me. Okay. So actually, that's very interesting. So because I did the background reading on mm-hmm. this. So in the book, Mrs. Danvers is much older and it's, I think, established that, like, she lost a kid or something at some point. So her relationship oh. and, like, obsession and devotion to Rebecca is very much, like... It's a mother-daughter thing. Yes, it's very, like, possessively maternal. Mm-hmm. So Judith Anderson is... I want to say she was, like... She was early 40s, I think, when they filmed it. So They like, looked about the same age, Yeah, though. exactly. So she wasn't going to be, like, old enough to have, like, that maternal one. So it, mm-hmm. I think you have that same element of, like obsessiveness and possessiveness and like devotion but because she's younger it definitely reads that way and I I think Hitchcock may have like directed it a little bit more that way but of course we're in we're firmly in Hayes Code era Mm -hmm. so no hint of lesbianism is really allowed explicitly. <laughs> you well, can't there, you can't say like it explicitly. There was a subtext but... there if you watch it oh, the yeah. right way. Well, and we watched this with one of our our good friends, and she, she also the thought same the thing, same yeah. thing. <laughs> no, I think it one hundred percent reads that way. She is just so devoted to this memory is, of yeah, Rebecca. She will let nothing soil it. Yes. Well, and it's kind of you know tying this in a little bit to the character of Rebecca, who we said you know I mean the film's named after her, her the mm-hmm. book's named after her, like she is the central character even though we never see her she's the one who drives all the action even though she's dead Mm -hmm. which i think is such a commentary on the character and basically you know from maxim de winter's descriptions of her he's like even from beyond the grave she's like trying to like set me up almost well and he's like oh she's gonna win yeah yeah it's 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 so fitting for that character but you also get like for a character who never appears she's in incredibly dimensional because Mm -hmm. everybody has like a different opinion of her. And you could say, I guess that like Max's is like the true, he knew like the true Rebecca, like the mean, spiteful, selfish Rebecca. But at the same time, like there's, what's the cousin's name? Oh, it was it's something Favreau. Is it Jack? I I don't, I don't, did they even ever give his first name? I only remember his last name. Anyway, the cousin whose last name is Favreau and whose first name I can't remember, like he was incredibly devoted to her. Mrs. Danvers mm-hmm. is incredibly devoted to her. And so you get these hints that Rebecca had this intensely, I don't like know. Magnetic, charismatic yeah. personality. And it's like, I, I feel like you never fully understand the true Rebecca. Like, I don't know. Like she's such a fascinating character to me. And like the way everybody has a slightly different vision Mm -hmm. of her and the way they like play around the idea of her, I think is so powerful. And I can't think of another movie that does something like that. Yeah. It's like the elephant in the room. Yeah, I guess maybe Vertigo, I think it's there's like another Mm -hmm. dead wife or something in that. that Like I think Jimmy Stewart's character is obsessed with, but regardless, it's it's great. It's, it's really good writing, really good filmmaking. Mm Mm-hmm. So going back to that West Wing scene for a minute, yes, I do sorry. want to talk about Ms. Danvers' performance yes. a little bit more. So the the first scene that we talked about with the fur coats was beautifully creepy. And then as Ms. Danvers is taking Joan through the room, mm-hmm. the the one thing that initially set me off was when uh, the new Mrs. DeWinter sits down at the vanity 
And Miss Danvers very subtly is like, oh, you moved her brush. Let me readjust it. And I swear to God, she moves it a quarter of an inch. But then it's... (laughs) And that was just a beautiful touch right there. Yes. And then even the scene with the negligee where she's like, oh, look how delicate it is. You can see my hand. Okay, that that had some overtones there. But it was still so perfect. Yes. And I really loved how Joan performed in this scene, too, because especially once we moved over to Rebecca's bed, you saw her character kind of in the shadows behind some flowers. Mm -hmm. And she was like, "Okay, I want to not be here. I want to disappear into the background. Again, that cinematography Um, and like the lighting. I want to get to the lighting because it's superb throughout. But that scene, that is when I was really on board with this being absolutely a best picture winner mm-hmm. <laughs> well that and then I, we're gonna skip ahead to because there's another scene that is so similar to that and i think this is a scene where you really get because like beforehand mrs danvers was creepy and this is the part where she becomes sinister so yes they decide they're gonna hold this big costume ball like they used to in manderley and um uh, Joan Fontaine's character decides that she's going to dress like this particular portrait. It was of like Caroline de Winter or something. She's in this like giant 1860s style ball gown. It was very Gone with the Wind. Yes. Now let's be clear here. Miss Danvers suggested yes. this outfit. So yes, she's like, you know, Joan's been drawing pictures, trying to decide what she's going to wear and who she's going to be, and nothing like she doesn't like anything. Miss Danvers is like, oh well, why don't you look at like the portraits out in the hall? Like maybe you'll find some inspiration there and very subtly kind of channels her towards this one portrait. Well, we find out that the last costume ball at Manderley, so Rebecca's been dead a year, it's established. So I guess the previous year. Yeah, so really quickly as an aside, it felt like she had been dead like 10 yeah. years. Yeah, the way they Not talk about a it. a year, but. Yeah, but um. <laughs> it turns out that Rebecca had dressed as that portrait. And so of course it freaks Max out. It freaks his sister and um, her husband out, which I loved both of them. They were fun. Yeah. Um, And so they're like, you have to go change. And of course, Joan Fontaine's crying. She's like, what have I done? Well, and I love the way she picks up on it. Like she can constantly pick up that something's wrong, but she doesn't understand what, and she assumes that it's something that she did, but no, because no one's telling her jack shit. Yeah. And it's so frustrating because I'm like, if you would sit her down and one, treat her as like a grown woman and not a child and like actually explain to her what the situation was and like why you decided to marry her and like, I don't know, make her feel like you actually love her, then everything would be fine. Yeah. But no one will tell her anything. So of course she sees the shift in Max's face and she's like, Oh God, what did I do? What do I do? And they're just like, go change, get out of that immediately without telling her why everyone's upset. And she realizes that Mrs. Danvers set her up and like runs into the West wing and has like her first confrontation Mm -hmm. with Mrs. Danvers where she's like, you set me up and Mrs. Danvers Let's lose the crazy. Oh my goodness. Miss Danvers has her by the window and is basically well, like. Well, first she's like, you can never replace. Basically, Joan Fontaine's like, why do you hate me? And she's like, because you tried to take Rebecca's place and you never could. Like, look at you. How could you? And of course, Mrs. Danvers thinks that Max and Rebecca were like deeply in love, which is not true at all. Well, and also, can I, can I, they keep talking about how Rebecca was so gorgeous, but. 
Joe Joan Fontaine, Fontaine is absolutely is gorgeous. Gorgeous as fuck. And I'm like, how could anybody be prettier than her? Well, but anyway. I think, I think that's part of Joan's physicality though, and why it's so good, because like, yeah, she's beautiful, but she's so meek in her She doesn't have the personality. presence. Yes, it's I think there's like a charisma element mm-hmm. there that I imagine. But regardless, yeah. back to the scene yes. with Miss Danvers being creepy AF. Yes. And at one point, yeah, she has her by this open window. So like Joan Fontaine has collapsed on the bed crying and she's like, I'll open a window for you. For some fresh air. Yeah. Wink, wink. But then she gets, I can't remember how she gets her over to the window, but she does. And she's basically just sitting there being like, it'd be so easy to jump. And it's cutting back and forth between this beautiful close up of Judith Anderson and Joan Fontaine and Joan Fontaine eyes are just like so dead and she's well and the lighting in this scene they have her eyes framed in this light that stands out Uh and it's like you're laser focused on seeing how she's puzzling through this yes and you can just see her her like subtly starting to like lean forward a little bit more as judith anderson is just like very kind of like quietly in her ear being like you could do it you could do it and then it's so easy Yes, it'd be so easy. And then it's cutting to like the fog outside the window and you can kind of like see the patio through it a little the bit. The fog clears yeah. just subtly. Oh, oh the suspense then, that was built up in this scene was amazing. Yes. It gets me every time. Like I've seen this movie actually multiple times before we watched it for the podcast. Mm-hmm. But like I said, it'd been a while and I was like, oh, like that is the one thing that I think Hitchcock does better than almost anybody else is the building of suspense mm-hmm. and like, there aren't really like jump scares in his film. I feel like maybe psycho a little bit, but like there's not really like jump scares, but there's just like so much tension that you're like, mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't handle it. <laughs> but of course Joan ends up being saved. Um, there's a boat in trouble, like out on the coast. Cause the Manderley is an estate on the coast. Mm-hmm. Um, and they shoot a flare, which kind of like, knocks them both out of, out of it. it. Yeah. yeah. Um, that scene is just like, it's so creepy. Ah, I love it though. I love it so much. It is. It's maybe my favorite scene in the movie. So pivoting to another scene where Joan had a very impressive performance. Well, the, I think the one you're going to talk about, I think the lighting. The lighting also, in this yep. was amazing. Oh my gosh. So this is, um, this actually, I believe happened before the, the costume ball. But this is where apparently Maxim and the new Mrs. De Winters are having a date night of sorts where they're going to watch through some old It's like footage from movies. their honeymoon. Yeah. yeah. And so before this honeymoon scene happens or honeymoon video viewing scene happens, you see Joan trying to figure out how she's going to be more glamorous and like try and live up to Rebecca. And she does it. By looking for some of the latest fashions from Paris, which I think it's London that she or maybe orders it was the dress London. from. It's a gorgeous dress too. It was. It was this uh, black. I, I don't want. How would you describe it? I, it was like a fitted black, like sweetheart neckline with like just thin straps on the shoulders. Mm-hmm. But there's like some beautiful like it was like cool f- roses mm-hmm. on it. It um, was so pretty, and she adorned it with a white pearl necklace. Yeah, and her hair is <laughs> more like styled, and it was definitely her attempt to be more adult. Yes. At least that's how I view it. Yes. Now, one thing that I've really appreciated in this scene is back in Monte Carlo, Maxim had said something about never wear black and pearls or something along those lines. No, which I'm going to be like, fuck off. She can wear whatever she wants. Yeah. But I still loved how that character change there was subtle mm-hmm. enough, but it was like, okay, I'm trying to not be a child anymore. Well, Here and- is my adult yes. self. And he's sort of like baffled by it. And not 
not necessarily angry at it, but like he seemed angry at I don't first know if it was though. Angry so much as just like bafflement and frustration. Like mm-hmm. like why? Like I like you so much better as this symbol of like purity and childhood and because that's what frustrates me about their relationship, at least at the beginning of the movie and through most of the movie. Mm-hmm. The most. And that is the idea that like the way he sees her, it's this idea of men using specifically older men using younger women as symbols. Mm-hmm. And it's like she, you know, she's such like a young, pure, beautiful soul. And like I've been through all this shit, but like this young person who is like a symbol of like vitality and youth is going to make all my problems go away. And you can't hear me roll my eyes, yeah. but it was big right now. I don't know. It's such a big <laughs> eye roll. You might've been able to hear it listeners. Um, but you know, in not seeing this young woman as a person and like a mm-hmm. dimensional layered person who has hopes and dreams and fears and insecurities, but just seeing them as a symbol and I think that's what keeps the distance in their relationship for so long until mm-hmm. like basically Max is forced to tell her because when the boat at the mask ball gets into trouble, they discover the sunken sailboat that was Rebecca's and they discover Rebecca's body and basically everything's going to come out. And so Max finally has to like explain everything to Joan. And I think that, you know, because he was forced to have to explain that and she finally knows what's going on. Like that's when the relationship changes. But like up until that point, it was like, he'd get frustrated at her for acting like a child, but like he would treat her like a child. Well, and it seemed like he'd get frustrated at her for acting like an adult as well. Yeah. Like she could do no right. Yes. Yeah. And it's of course, you know, her poor character sitting there going like, what did I do? What did I do? And I'm like, no, 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 no. The sticks up his ass. Like (laughs) it's his issue. Yeah. But going to back, back to the scene where they're watching their honeymoon videos. Sorry. Um, Oh no, you're fine. I love how you see one, the contrast in their performances in the home movies versus them now. Mm -hmm. So they're both relatively somber, but you know, reminiscing pleasantly about yeah. the time it was, but well, on they ha- screen. Cause they have an argument and he stops the movies and then he's like, let's forget about it and starts mm-hmm. up the movies. But like, it is not the same vibe in the room. And no. it's like this weird forced charade of like mm-hmm. Joan kind of sitting there quietly and you've got her f- eyes highlighted, which I love when it's a close up on her face when he turns off the lights and turns back on the projector and the way it like highlights her eyes and like just the emotion on her face. Well, and oh. this was almost so on because of the way the lighting was set up in the room, half of her face was lit when the film was stopped and the light was on. But then simultaneously that light goes off while the flickering of the film comes on. And so the jarring transition between this constant soft pretty light into mm-hmm the flickering was like, okay, look at this new fake thing. We're yeah. just like living in a, a fantasy. And then is kinda, she's completely what, quiet. I think there's like a couple of tears on her cheek and like Lawrence Olivier is just going on with this like forced semi happy commentary of like the honeymoon videos. Yeah. Oh, scene was so good. The well, lighting especially. And I don't think we've mentioned this yet, but the chemistry between the two of them was so good. It was. They, I thought they played off each other so well. And Lawrence Olivier is always a little bit hit or miss with me, but mm-hmm. like, I, this is my favorite role of his. 
I think he plays it perfectly and I can't imagine anybody else doing it better. But yeah, that, that was, I think one of my favorite scenes, um, Mm -hmm. besides the West wing scene that we, we previously discussed. Yeah. That one, that was not one that I remembered. Because it has been, like I said, it had been a while since I watched the movie, mm-hmm. and I was just like, "Oh, I forgot well, how pretty this is." Well, and it honestly is. made me think a little bit of the Sunset Boulevard scene. Yes. Uh, where, uh, oh shoot, what is her name? The actress Norma Desmond. Yes, she's backlit with the screen flickering. Yeah. And, oh, it, very it was like that, that visually, but a less dramatic. Yes. But, but also the, the same dramatic because <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's kind of the cool thing is it is it is a very underplayed film. Like, there's not a whole lot of like action but there's just like this sinister undercurrent Mm -hmm. that kind of propels everything forward well and to take it a little more generally as well i think the lighting especially in manderley played that up so well so what i've noticed hitchcock hitchcock doing in this film is having um like projected shapes in shadows Mm -hmm. that the characters move through or the characters are framed in. And especially in some of the first scenes we get with the new Mrs. De Winter wanting to go downstairs after getting dressed, it's you get this dappled look on her face that just makes it seem so much darker and grittier and really made me feel uneasy. Yeah. I have to say there were like some things about that house that I was like, I would have gone in there and been like, guys, we got to change some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's a little too dark. Yeah. This is my house now. But again, which, you're not meek enough for that. Yes. Speaking of which, <laughs> so I want to talk actually, you know, we've danced around a little bit about the scene where their relationship changes and Joan finally learns. Yes. What's going we need on. to tackle this. So yeah. So the setup to this, like we mentioned, there's the boat in trouble on the coast um, outside Manderley. Um, they like send divers or something to help with that boat. And in the process discover Rebecca's sunken yacht and Rebecca's body. And previously Max had like gone further up the coast and like identified Rebecca's body. And it turns out it was just like some poor random woman who had drowned, but Max Mm -hmm. had identified her as Rebecca. And what this sets up is that Max was not in fact in love with Rebecca. They had a terrible relationship where they hated each other. Although I don't ever feel like it's a hundred percent firmly established why he hated her so much. And she was so terrible. I think she just like had a lot of affairs and would kind of rub his nose in it. Yeah. I, it, so again, Hayes code, I don't think that they could say, okay, she slept around a lot. Yeah. They like kind of say it was. And I think she at one point was like trying to seduce his good friend Crawley. Who's like his estate manager. Oh yeah. There was that offhand comment about how Crawley didn't have much luck. Poor faithful Crawley and stuff like that. Um, so what, happens to kind of like spur the accident slash murder slash suicide. I don't think it was a murder. Suicide. No, no, no. Okay. So I what, really do think it was an accident. Well, yes, but I'm going to oh, okay. talk about this. So, um, <laughs> basically there's this little cabin on the, uh, like beach mm-hmm. where Rebecca would like take all of her lovers and stuff. And one night she calls Max down there, like the night of her death, she calls him down there And she's basically just like going at him and tells him that she's pregnant with another man's child and basically is like daring him to kill her. And he doesn't. But instead, she trips and hits her head on like an anchor, like some boat tackle. They call it heavy rigging. Yeah. They were showing Um, an anchor. (laughs) Yeah. And it it kills her. Um, And so then Max freaks out because he's like, people are going to think I pushed her. So he takes her body, puts it in the yacht, goes out into the storm that's going on, drills holes in the boat, scuttles the boat. And then, you know, later 
by chance that other body washes up, he goes and identifies it and everyone assumes that it was like this horrible accident. And of Mm -hmm. course people think he's very broken up over it because like they don't understand what their relationship was really like. I love how you have people saying or hinting at how from the outside it looked like this was a perfect marriage yes. and she was so well loved that Maxim well, was the luckiest man. Yes. And that's one of the things that I think he hated about Rebecca is because she would be like, Oh, we'll play the part. It'll be so funny. And I, yeah, that's like part of the problem with their relationship. I think is so are, you might have problems yes. with this, but this makes me think a little bit of gone girl. I have not seen a red gone girl. So but I, I, I know highly the premise. recommend the book, yeah, but I know this the makes me think of it a lot. Yeah, I could see that um, just from what I, I've heard about it. Um, but so interesting fact about Rebecca's death. So in the movie it is, of course, an accident. And then we actually later learned that Rebecca had been diagnosed with inoperable cancer. Mm-hmm. So it ends up being ruled a suicide because she basically like wanted Max to kill her because she didn't want to die a long, slow death. She wanted it just like over. Yeah, um, and she got her wish. Yeah, and her last bit of spitefulness was that she wanted Max to go down for it. <laughs> but in the movie, of course, it's an accident mm-hmm. that she hits her head, falls, hits her head. In the book, he shoots her. Oh, I hmm. yeah. Okay, that. So when I was watching the film through, I noticed that it felt like the feel of the f- movie completely changed after that scene and felt very, I don't know if it felt like it was dragging on or it, it just didn't yeah. feel consistent. And this sounds like yeah, so it might've been a change. Although that, in the book, like the ending is roughly the same and you find out that she had been diagnosed with cancer. And so mm-hmm. like it was her form of suicide basically. Um, uh, and the second Mrs. DeWinter is like, he said he loved me. And I'm like, he also just said he shot his first wife. So oh, see, I like that so much better though. Yeah. I love the idea of Maxim being less of a white knight. Yes. Yes. And the fact that like, he is also a deeply flawed character, which oh, you get some of that. This makes me so sad that they didn't Well, the reason they had to do that is because remember, we are firmly in Hayes Code. And one of the big things with the Hayes Code is... She added to get her comeuppance, didn't no, no, she? Well... Yes, but a spouse killing a spouse has to be punished. So by saying oh. that he wanted to kill her, but he didn't. She just tripped and hit her head and it was an accident. Max can now get a happy ending under the Hayes Code. So oh, that's why that's they made so the disappointing. change. I know. It's it's better. You, read some Daphne du Maurier. Okay. All of her books, there's <laughs> a lot of like moral gray area and the characters mm-hmm. are all like really complicated and dark. It's really, really fun. Oh. But yeah. Oh. But no, this scene, though, I love seeing the change in Joan's character. Because mm-hmm. immediate, she's, immediately she's like, okay, what are we going to do to fix this? So yes. she turned from this like meek in the shadows, do whatever Rebecca would have wanted, to we're going to get through this yes. and I'm going to make she could, sure. She like, comes through in a crisis. Oh, yeah. Because Max is Olivia like Pope-ing ready to just, shit. yes, Max is ready <laughs> to just like phone it in and be like, this is it. They finally got me. Mm-hmm. Sorry, babe. And she's like, uh-uh, we're getting through this. Um, and then there's, I can't remember what exactly it is, but she actually stands up to Mrs. Danvers at some point, isn't it? Or is it one of the other servants? They say something and she's like about like what Rebecca would have done. And she's like, 
I'm mistress of this house now. I, I think it was Danvers when she was like, please get rid of all of this stuff. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> in because, the writing, in yes. the morning room. Yeah, in the that... morning room, which is where Rebecca would do like her letters and approve like the menu for the day and all that stuff. It's all, I, okay, first, I've never seen so many monograms in my life. I was like, this woman monogrammed everything. Which, but I mean, I'm sure. it, <laughs> it worked because then it's like, there's a constant presence of Rebecca in the house. Yes. But she basically like puts together all of the like monogrammed address books and stuff like that and is like, Mrs. Danvers, get rid of these. And she's like, but they're Mrs. DeWinter's. And her response is, I'm Mrs. DeWinter now. And I was like, fuck, yes. <laughs> About time you got a backbone. <laughs> yes. It's when I like I said, as frustrating as it is through like the bulk of that movie, how meek that character is, it is so satisfying when you finally see her stand up for herself. And I like it's it's brilliant. Well, again, it's the building up of that suspense Mm -hmm. that I think was done so well in this film. Yeah. And basically the end, I think we'll kind of like go like gloss over this a bit. But like there is the trial around um, Rebecca or the inquest, which looks Mm -hmm. like it's going to be ruled an accident. And then Rebecca's cousin slash lover gets involved and he's like adamant that Max killed her. Um, mm-hmm. Because she had sent him this letter that was like, I'll meet you at the house on the beach tonight. Um, I have something to tell you. Yeah. And he thinks that she's going to tell him that she's pregnant. And But I love hearing the story from Maxim. It was really that she wanted him to discover that Maxim had killed yes. Rebecca. Yeah, exactly. Like It's like that final fuck you to Max. Yeah. Oh. Which. So cold and calculated. Yes. I love it. Yes. Um. <laughs> And so then, of course, like through the inquest, they discover that, um, you know, Rebecca had cancer and they they pull Mrs. Danvers in because he's like, what was the name of her doctor? And Mrs. Danvers like won't give it up at first because she's like trying to protect Rebecca. And it's just her devotion to this woman is insane. I don't get it. Well, it's... I would have gotten the mother thing. They really, like... See, I I, I like it. I, I think because it's so weird. It's creepier it's, in its yes, current iteration. It's definitely creepier in the current iteration. But Judith Anderson plays it so well. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's not over the top. But, like, you can see, I think, particularly in that scene where she doesn't want to give it up. And they're like, what was the name of the doctor? And she gives, like, the family doctor. And they're like, no, 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 no. The other doctor, the one in, the London. in London, and she's like, I don't know anything about that. And you can see her like kind of starting to cry as they're pressuring her. And then Jack finally gets her to give the name when he's like, we were trying to find out who murdered her because she was murdered. And you know who did probably did it, Max. And that's, I think, what breaks Mrs. Danvers because she realizes that this entire perception, or at least part of the perception of that idyllic life. Mm-hmm. that she was watching was a lie. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, it's not just the like obsession with Rebecca. We know we've talked about that, like kind of like lesbian um, subtext mm-hmm. and like the fact that she was like in love with, with Rebecca. I think there was also like an intense jealousy. Like I think in mm-hmm. like my opinion with the way Anderson reads it, I think there's like that she was in love with Rebecca, but she was also insanely jealous because that was like almost like, the dream life that she would have wanted. Like she's just so in awe of her. And it's the way you saw her touch and go through all of the things yes. in Rebecca's room. Yes, like in the they're West so delicate and pretty. Mm-hmm. And it's just like this vicarious living that, through like, Rebecca. Well, and again, with the idea of like putting women on these pedestals and them not being real people, mm-hmm. it's like 
one from Max's idea, you have the idea of this haunting, sinister, vengeful Rebecca. But then from Mrs. Danvers, it's like almost this like unreal goddess type character, mm-hmm. which I think is part of like that obsession. Yeah, it's uh, she just plays it really well. Yes, yes. It's... Mostly, I love her stony face that every so often will just slightly crack. Yes, and that's and ugh, it always cracks so at creepy. the right time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because she isn't like straight up in your face crazy, but you're like, there is something so off about this woman. Oh, it's so good. Um, and then I don't think I'd said that all episode. It's so good. My catchphrase. Oh, well, I've said absolutely about five times. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, so in the end, they, the inquest rules it actually suicide, you know, after the cancer information comes out. And of yeah, course, cause this was like, cancer is not treatable. Yeah. At um, all. <laughs> And I mean, I think they even say they're like, it was inoperable. Like it was Mm -hmm. like, there was no chance. And the cousin is of course, I'm pretty sure his first name is Jack. That feels right. Mr. F. Mr. Favreau. Um, he of course like calls Mrs. Danvers and is like, yeah, she just didn't tell either one of us. Like I'm afraid it was. She held out on both of us is I think his line. I loved that line too. Oh, also interesting thing. So Rebecca had used Mrs. Danvers name at the doctor, Mm -hmm. which I thought was kind of a nice touch because it either shows there's two ways you could read that as either. She also did care about Mrs. Danvers or Danny. I think Mm -hmm. is what she would call her. And that there was like some sort of at least friendship there, like Mm -hmm. a little bit of like compassion or a little bit of like mutual feeling, or she was just completely using her the way she used everybody else. Right. Well, and I think if we were in the situation where Miss Danvers was the matronly figure, that would make, that would be less complex and less obvious. Or, sorry, it would be less complex complex and more more obvious obvious why she would use Danvers. But I I love the, you can read it like five different ways. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, which is a lot of this movie, actually. Um, But so, basically, that pushes Danny over the edge. Way over the Which, edge. They do a nice little bit of tension here too, because Joan's character, the second Mrs. De Winter, had gone back to Manderley, mm-hmm. and then like Max and the Judge and Crawley and Jack all go see the Doctor in London. Mm-hmm. So as they're driving back to Manderley, and this is after the cousin, favorite cousin yes, has, has called, called Mrs. Danvers. Yeah. We have Max and Crawley driving back to Manderley, and. Really quickly, before we get to that, because I want to... There's a scene after the call, but before we see them coming back... Oh, yes, I think I know what you're Ms. talking about. With Miss Danvers walking up creepily to a sleeping Joan... Oh, yes, with, holding a candle. ...with the black dog on her, on yes. her way, uh, lap. Yeah. So one, one thing that we haven't mentioned up to this point is there's this little ba- black spaniel that is most definitely a symbol for Rebecca. Yeah. Because you see the dog outside the West Wing. You see the dog run into the cottage. There's another scene where they go down to the cottage for the first time on the beach, and Mm -hmm. the dog's like, let me in, let me in. And finally, in this scene, you see that the dog is on the lap of Joan's character. And it's like, okay, now you are Mrs. DeWinter. Yeah, you are mistress of the house. All of these little subtle transformations are beautiful. And then in the scene as well, you get this gorgeous lighting on the face of Mrs. Danvers, who now and has some crazy this candle. eyes. Yeah, has crazy <laughs> eyes and is staring at the sleeping Joan. So you know something's yeah. about to go down. And so you, well, right before you have the shot of Max and Crawley driving back, there's actually a really nice scene between the two of them where basically Max is like, Crawley, I need to explain what really happened. And Crawley basically is like, no, I know. 
And Max is like, it's not what you think, but it's this idea that Crawley had from the very beginning thought Max had killed Rebecca, but he was like, I'm here for you. Yeah. Which is either really creepy or really sweet. I think it's really <laughs> sweet because it's established that like Crawley is a very loyal character and it sounded like Rebecca you know, tried to seduce him to further mm-hmm. mess with Max. And then there's the whole thing that Jack says, because um, Joan's character faints during the inquest. And I think she's mm-hmm. sitting next to Crawley and he like catches her. And Jack's like, you know, when they put Maxim away, Crawley, you can always step in and be like the brotherly figure who gives her the shoulder to cry on. Maybe you'll have more luck with this Mrs. DeWinter. Oh, and Cra- that line. Crawley looks like he's going to kill him. Max walks up and punches him. At the time of watching the movie, I was like, oh, Max is punching him because of what he's saying about Joan's character. But I was like, no, I think he's actually punching him for what he says about Crawley. Like, there's a nice, Mm -hmm. there's a nice, like, male friendship there in this movie. Like, it's Mm -hmm. not given a ton of attention, but, like, the scenes that it happens, like, I really like the Crawley-Max relationship. I do, too. Yeah. But anyway, so, sorry, back to the end. But now they're in the car. Yes, so they're driving (laughs) back, and Max is like, I have a feeling something's wrong. And they talk about how they're like, what time is it? Because they can see what looks like a glowing sunrise in the distance in the direction of Manderley. And they're like, it's like, what, 3 a.m. or something? They're like, there shouldn't be the sunrise. And, and so, so then he puts pedal to the metal. Yeah, and you start seeing <laughs> flames and smoke. And Manderley is up in flames. Fortunately, we know that Joan is out yes, because Joan almost immediately it's Joan and uh, Maxim. I and actually, she's like, I appreciated that they didn't ride that tension too hard. Oh, agreed. Um, because like you already had it a little bit because you saw Mrs. Danvers creepily looking at her. So you're mm-hmm. like, oh no. Someone's going to die. Yeah. But I like that they were like, no. Like they didn't try and be like, oh, where is Joan? Did she get out? They like kind of let that tension release pretty mm-hmm. quickly. Well, and I like that because this is really, again, about Rebecca. Yeah. Because you see... When I like they say it started in the West Wing. They specify the mm-hmm. fire started in the West Wing. And it's, oh, what was the line that Joan said? It was something about how Miss uh, Danvers could not stand to see Joan's character and Mr. DeWinter's happy. in yeah. the house. Yeah, so she's like, I'm going to burn it down in flames before I see them happy. Yeah. And then you get this gorgeous scene, also kind of sad and creepy. I don't know. It was. It's the perfect ending. It was. It, it really was. So you see Miss Danvers walking through a, a like conflagration, conflagration. I have no idea. I know I know how to spell the word. I don't. Know I don't how know to how say to it. say it. <laughs> a, a big fire, <laughs> um, in the West Wing, and you see her kind of like looking out calmly with these like stony well, eyes. She's going up to the windows, and then at one point she looks like she's going to jump out the window, but then she doesn't, and it's just a shot of like these like burning the pieces of the roof down. just falling in and it you know and that is the end of miss yeah. danvers yeah and it's like the revenge of rebecca like she won but didn't win but the, like she also did win in some way mm-hmm. and so i don't think we talked about this but the very first shot of the movie oh is, we completely skipped that <laughs> yeah it's the burnt out manderly mm-hmm. so we know the entire movie that like something's gonna happen this giant house is gonna burn down mm-hmm. Like, how did we get here? So, but I feel like, I don't know, the, the peaks and like troughs of tension throughout the movie, like you very much. You completely forget forward. about yeah. the first scene or at least like, I knew it was going to burn down eventually, but I, you get, you still get like really caught up and you're like, yeah. how, why? Like, mm-hmm. and yeah, Mrs. Danvers doing it kind of in Rebecca's name. Again, it's that just like 
that hold Rebecca had on everyone. But then also you see the monogrammed lingerie case burning up, Mm -hmm. which is, it's like she won, but like also she didn't like, this is the last thing that Rebecca had over them was Mm -hmm. Manderly. Though and now I'm it's like, gone. Yeah. What about the sea cottage, though? <laughs> I feel like you bulldoze that. I mean, yeah. Sucker. I mean, also, didn't I don't they think have you go insurance? Back to like, why couldn't they rebuild it? Ian, I don't know, but would you want to? I wouldn't. Yeah, and completely remake it. Like you still have the walls, I but think, you can like. But I think the whole point with that is, and because the first Maggie are on the ocean, the voiceover. <laughs> so the voiceover at the beginning, it's straight from the book, but it's like I dreamt of Manderly last night, and basically blah 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 blah. I don't think I'll ever go back and I don't Mm -hmm. think they could because even though you know her learning about the truth of Rebecca's death and Rebecca and Max's relationship sort of brought her and Max together I think at the same time like you can't you can't live in that shadow like she's gotten out of it a little bit but I think having Manderly there like going back to Manderly would have been you're still somewhat in her shadow. You're somewhat in the shadow of the events. And mm-hmm. while her character did grow, I don't think she is quite strong enough for that level of fuck you. <laughs> well, that's fair. And I'm sure they have a fabulous house in London. Oh, now. yeah. Like, or like, I don't know where Italy, his money comes from. Or like, yeah, Monte no. Carlo. <laughs> Monte Carlo. Monte, as Mrs. Van Hopper oh, kept calling gosh, it. Oh my gosh, Mrs. Van Hopper. Oh, my so God, glad yeah. she disappeared quick. Yes. Um, But no, I really like this film one last thing before we move on though i want to talk about the soundtrack so for the most part i thought the soundtrack was perfectly decent Mm -hmm. it added effects where it needed to but the one thing that i absolutely loved was rebecca's theme yeah i don't know if you noticed this Mm -hmm. but the very i think it was the very first time they went into the cottage you get this warbling organ i think the movie starts with it Um, too and as i missed that yeah i think i believe the movie starts with rebecca's theme but I could be wrong. But, but it comes back as, every time. As you're kind of like following up the drive as the mm-hmm. voiceover happens to the burnt out Manderley and it's like in like moonlight and stuff, but I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure it starts with Rebecca's theme. Every every time we need to be prompted to think, like bring Rebecca to the forefront and she's of the, the only scene. one who has a theme. Exactly. They will play this like, warbling organ mm-hmm. is it is it a wurlitzer i don't i don't know i should i should I, know. <laughs> I should look that up i'm like the music sounded um, nice <laughs> but it's the the same sort of uh, organ sound that you would get often in like scooby-doo yeah where it was like this creepy background noise yeah. so it was really really mm-hmm. good and i appreciated that yeah okay cool any last things you want to talk about before we go into rankings I really don't know what that one character, Bob, was it Bob? I the, think so. The one guy that was kind of crazy. Yeah. The one who had been threatened with the asylum. Yeah. I just, I'm trying to figure out what he, like that, that would be the one character where I'm like, I don't understand your purpose. I'm trying this. to remember. He may have had a bigger role in the book. I think it's, it's a little bit upping the creep factor because he's been hiding out in that beach shack in when Rebecca's she, shack, yeah, yeah, when uh, Joan discovers it. And so there's like a creepy exchange there. Um, and then Jack, Rebecca's cousin later says that like one time he caught them down there. And so like Rebecca had threatened to put him in an asylum, which is why when he's asked to give evidence mm-hmm. at the inquiry and they're like, you were always around there. Like, surely you saw something the night of her death. He's like, I didn't see anything. I don't want to go to the asylum. Yeah. I, I don't know that the rest of the movie absolutely loved I it. I think it, it might've been a little bit of a red herring. Okay. Maybe. I, I could see that. I don't know. 
but mm, yeah, that, that was the only kind of like ho-hum. Yeah. Like, but it, they this. didn't harp on it too much. And like his performance was good. So it, was, yeah. it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't like a deal breaker or anything. But yeah, hmm, definitely want to watch it again. Need to need to, cause I'm sure there's a bunch that I missed yeah. on my first watch through. Yeah, I w- yeah, this is definitely, I would say this is definitely one, you know, we were talking about how we're going to start doing that, like, would recommend, or you can skip this one. I would recommend this one for sure. Absolutely want to watch this one. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, so I guess lists now. Yeah. I have decided that it's going to be my number fourth. Okay. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm lying. I'm totally lying. I want it to be my number third. So... I It is knocking out it happened. It is knocking out it happened. And the reason it is is because I think in addition to the performances being fantastic which it happened amazing performances. This film also had amazing performances. But as a whole, I felt that the cinematography was better, the soundtrack was better, and the way the suspense was built up, it was like an emblematic thriller. It was so entertaining, like differently than it happened one night, but yeah. You hurt me. You hurt I know. me deeply. So for me, my top three are All Quiet on the Western Front, Gone with the Wind, and Rebecca. Okay. It is my number four. It is after It Happened One Night and before Grand Hotel. So the reason it does not beat It Happened One Night for me is because It Happened One Night is a, basically a perfect movie for me. And there's just, there's a delight factor. Like when I am sad, I can be like, I'm going to put on It Happened One Night and Mm -hmm. I instantly feel better. And then I just like the banter in It Happened One Night is so incredible. And I am such a sucker for like (laughs) good banter. Um, With Rebecca, though, I agree. Performance is amazing. Cinematography, amazing. Soundtrack, good. Like I also the characters in Rebecca, while they are perfect, like well written and well played, the characters themselves frustrate me more than It Happened One Night. Like I can get behind (laughs) Ellie a lot more than I can get behind the second Mrs. DeWinter. How about Miss Danvers? Can you get behind Miss Danvers? I love her. She's so freaking creepy. <laughs> um, and also, like, Gable's character of Peter Warren and have one night. I can get behind him so much more than I can get behind Maxim DeWinter. Oh, I don't know. I think I think this is, like, a difference in what we like in a movie, though. Yeah, no. Because I take glee in this thriller setup I that they too, have. I do, too, but I take more glee in Woody Banter. Uh, and fair. I don't know what Claudette that says Colbert about me. Claudette Colbert and Clark but... Gable, like... <laughs> given great face. Um, but I put it before grand hotel because I would say on the whole performances in Rebecca stronger, like grand hotel had a few like standout performances. But I think if you kind of like look at like net performance, I would Mm -hmm. go with Rebecca over grand hotel. Um, the cinematography, I agree better soundtrack better. Like, yeah, I, it's my number four. So it's still high up there because yeah, I mean, no, we're, oh, sure. we're at 13 now. So yes, yeah, it's, it's pretty top high. Top 25%. Would, yeah, I would put it definitely in like our top tier mm-hmm. for sure. A, again, a, I, think, I think what is going to happen is it's probably going to be like the top X percent of our lists are going to be the watch again films. <laughs> yeah. And I imagine those like the order will probably be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. But it'll probably be a lot of the same films. I yeah. think the middle of the pack is where we're really going to see preferences vary. <laughs> so, but yeah, on the whole, do it's it, this is a do watch. Yeah. And honestly, a must watch. It's kind of hard to find. Like we actually yes. had to buy a DVD of this one. This is one. the first one that we were not able to find on Amazon, honestly. Well, on streaming at least. Well, yeah, on streaming. But it is, it is accessible. You yeah. just, I mean, don't bootleg it. Yeah. Actually buy it. It's, it's worth it. Yeah, you'll because you'll definitely want to watch it multiple times, mm-hmm. and 
It's a good one. Okay, so I guess that wraps it up for us. Um, if you want to find us on social media, we are on Instagram and Twitter um, at Best Pictures Pod on both. If you want to send us in an email telling us how we can make the podcast better or just like giving us any longer form thoughts you have on the movies. Um, we are best pictures podcast at gmail.com. Please rate, subscribe, review. We would love some feedback. Um, and you know, we just, thanks for listening. Um, absolutely. Yeah. So I guess join us next time. I don't remember what we're doing next time. How green was the, my Valley? Sounds right. Okay. Bye guys. Thanks. Thanks.